Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So have you heard about this crazy heat wave we're having right now? Well, we're kind of in the midst of it in Missouri. It's been very hot here. We broke something like 50 records yesterday. Oh, wow. In, in terms of heat. Yeah, the hottest place in Canada ever is about four hours from here. They hit, well, Fahrenheit, it was like 47 degrees, so probably about 115, 100, I don't know what that is in, in, our, in our, you know, like the hottest temperature ever recorded in Canada, not just in June, like just ever. Oh, my. It, where yeah, you're at, it's 116. Nathan, welcome. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for... Thanks for uh, having me, inviting me here. Yeah, Nathan just finished his PhD at the University of Toronto in philosophy. Oh, wonderful. Well, so, he can yeah. he can help us then. Uh, he, he came to get schooled. <laughs> <laughs> what was your uh, what was your dissertation on? Uh, it was on Emmanuel Levinas. Oh, great. Okay. And the really good thing I, I said was to Nathan was they're they're opening a philosophy factory just up the street here, so he's got a really good job. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm sure he's looking into what ads. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I, I saw somebody um, post that somebody was how is there, how are those that have finished navigating the the job market, and somebody said, well, after four years, uh, even after having two books out, it took me four years. 75 applications to land a teaching position in the philosophy, in the philosophy department. Oh, wow. And Good evening, Matt. How come we can't see you, Matt? Oh, I'm on my cell phone, and I, uh, I, I have a deep psychological uh, hatred for myself, so I don't like to see myself on screen. Oh, me too. I mean, to myself, not for you. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have you. Yeah, haven't seen you for a while. So we did the introduction and the chapter on Freud. I, I thought I was reading David Bentley Huddigan, so many big words. Oh, I just make that stuff up, though. <laughs> I, just got, uh, I just got Quentin's uh, new book. It just came out today, Once, a t Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a little novella. It's not just like a redo of the movie, though. It's like a whole backstory on like how Cliff got the dog and all this stuff, and it's really great so far. In the same like sort of Amazon box, I got Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Noam Chomsky's new book. It's called like you know On the Precipice. The one will balance out the other. Chomsky will straighten you out from your Quentin Tarantino. Hey, Matt. Uh, well, I graduated with a degree in theology, and then I found out no one was hiring theologians. That that's not even a, a job. And I apologize for that. It's partly my fault. I, I send all you people off to get these degrees that. Total waste of time and money. <laughs> no, I spent some time at the Kierkegaard Library up in Northfield, uh, St. Olaf. Oh, wow. Studying Kierkegaard. Um, and I'm currently a hospice chaplain. Um, I'm an Orthodox Christian. Good We're all Orthodox Christians, man. And I help. That's right. I'm, I'm, that's, that's true. Um, yeah, man. Another. <laughs> now, um, my, I, I will live in infamy. I edited uh, Paul's book. And then, you know, so I will live, I will go down in the in history with my name. And, and Your name is there, yes. Twice, I think, yes. I think I'm footnoted too, which is, you know. Yes, funny. yes, you've got a footnote. I remember the footnote. <laughs> Good to see you guys. 
My name is uh, Paul Axton. I was a, a missionary and t ran a Bible college in uh, Japan for about 15 years. And we came back here. I taught here for 10 years. And then we started uh, forging plowshares about five years ago. I think we're in our fifth year. I did a degree in, uh, at Nottingham University. I don't know if you're all familiar with uh, radical orthodoxy. I studied with Connor Cunningham, is vaguely familiar, but it was the one place that I could have studied in the overlap in theology and psychoanalysis. In Japan, one of the famous, most prominent theorists in all things, you know, what is called Nihonjin Ron, was a guy named Takeo Doi, who was a psychoanalyst. And Takeo Doi's teacher had studied with Sigmund Freud in Vienna. And Doi then is proposing a unique, everything that you hear about Japanese, all, it will always be, oh, they are unique. And, and that's this approach is that he actually suggested to Freud, instead of the Oedipus complex, he proposes what is called the Ajase complex which is, to make a long story short, it is a kind of reversal. It turns Freudian theory on its head. And this is actually what got me into Lacan and Zizek, because I recognized that what Doi was doing was very, in a hidden, implicit way, is exactly what Lacan and Zizek. Jacques Lacan, are you all familiar with Lacan or Lacanian theory? Lacan was kind of a strange psychoanalytic theorist in France, a great admirer of Heidegger and Derrida, but he actually is quite innovative in taking up Freudian theory, and he's working with Freudian theory. But he's, what he's doing with Freud, he's, instead of reading Freud the way that Freud would want to be read as a kind of scientist and biologist, Lacan takes all that Freud is doing and puts it in a linguistic register, which actually works very neatly because that's really the, the frame that Freud is working in. Even Freud's own pointers suggest as much, you know, that he's really working, even though he wants to be a scientist like Darwin, he's really especially after he writes the ego and the id, you know, uh, beyond the pleasure principle, which comes prior to that, but especially the ego and the id, he proposes then an alternative understanding of psychoanalysis. And this is the, the tripartite understanding that we all, I guess, are familiar with, the superego, the ego, and the id. And so, what Lacan will do is rename those three registers and build a different theory. But of course, key in it is that what Freud is working with, he, in the beginning, he imagined that the instincts were only one, that it was mono-instinctual, and that it was basically eros, the sex drive. And he himself became unhappy with a kind of mono-instinctual understanding because it doesn't explain the conflicts that he was encountering in the clinic. And so I know this all sounds strange, but 
is going to tie in, okay? If you can hang with the weirdness of the Freudian stuff a little bit, it actually will begin to, to make sense in a biblical frame. And so he proposes the death instinct or the, you know, uh, dual instincts. And this then becomes the interpretive key to the latter part of Freud. And that's what Lacan and Zizek are focused on, is this latter half of Freud. The way that this all ties in, what the suggestion here is that actually Freud is functioning as a kind of philosopher, that we're going to read philosophy in a new key, in a different way. This ties into theology because what Lacan and Zizek are doing, they're tying, you know, Zizek calls himself a Pauline materialist. Zizek is his theory, he atheism, he means something very specific with that, which I'll explain. Lacan, of course, was raised in a Catholic family. His brother was a Catholic priest. I'm always a little unclear what Lacan's uh, belief system, religious belief system, but I, I assume he was agnostic and, or atheistic. But the point is that they're both tying their psychoanalytic theory directly into the Apostle Paul, and particularly the Paul of Romans chapter 7 that Lacan first reads his theory into Romans 7, and Zizek then has been on a, a journey for many years of reading his entire theory from a kind of Pauline materialist perspective. Zizek would be a kind of atheistic Christian. What he means by that, that every true Christian is one who gets rid of a particular understanding of God. That is, God as the big other, or God as the, the law keeper, or the giver of the law, or the kind of oppressive superego understanding of God. I, I think that every good Christian, in this sense, we all need to pass through a dispelling of that, or a, a deconstruction of a particular understanding of God. And so, I, I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. I think he is deconstructing one understanding of God and giving us an alternative understanding. But you have to understand who God is not. And so in the book, what I'm doing, I'm using Zizek throughout, mainly in a positive way. That is just kind of deploying him. But by the time we get to the end of the book, I, there, that we'll begin a critique of Zizek and go beyond Zizek and pose a more orthodox understanding. But in the meanwhile, cleared ourselves of a particular understanding. That's a, a quick introduction. And what I'll do next is tie this specifically into philosophy. In the introduction, I provide, the last thing I do, I provide a little key that I think that will help you with, you know, after I've lived here, you guys that have done dissertation, you, know, you live with something long enough and you just think everybody should understand it the way that you do. What I've tried to do there in the introduction is just provide a key of the logic that we're working throughout. And that key then is this tripartite structure. Well, I'm taking this from Lacan and Zizek, but I'm reading it perhaps in a stronger fashion 
than they are. And that is that I'm suggesting that this structure functions the way that a deception or a lie functions. Zizek is going to talk about a primordial deception. They're both talking about a pure construct. That is, they believe the human subject is this pure construct, a kind of creation ex nihilo, you know, from an atheistic perspective, that here's the way Schelling, that Zizek will do a close reading of Schelling and of Hegel both. But the idea is that how do you get God even from nothing? How do you get the human subject from nothing? And of course, it is through language. It is through the structure of language. And so the ego, or what Lacan will call the imaginary, the word ego, you know, is just a good biblical word. It's ego, I. It is the word that Paul is going to use there in Romans 7 some 20 times. He refers to it in Galatians. And so Paul is going to say, I have been crucified. The ego has been crucified. So for Paul, this is not a reality. Lacan and Zizek are saying the ego then is imaginary. It is a construct. It's a product. It's a byproduct of what is called the mirror stage, you know, when a child looks in the mirror and they see their image. Freud actually does this. This is actually in a footnote in Freud. Lacan says he's never doing anything but reading Freud. And I think he's right that once you get into Lacan, and you really, Lacanian theories on its own, it just seems like nonsense. Even Zizek said, I never understood Lacan until uh, Jacques Miller, his son-in-law, he, uh, Zizek was analyzed by Miller, and Miller then is a much, you know, he, he's grounding it. But the point is they were coming together in these seminars, and they were doing a close reading of Freud so that we're only going to understand Lacan and Zizek with a Freudian background. The picture here in a footnote that Freud talks about, I won't tell you about. I did the day of babysitting. I always think this would make a wonderful movie, Freud's Day of Babysitting, in which he witnesses his grandchild learn, begin to learn language, and discovers himself in the mirror, and says, you know, he begins to play the game. Every child, I think, plays it, you know, peekaboo, hide and seek, you know, you see yourself, I, I'm gone, I'm here. I remember my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's now in her 30s, but I remember playing hide and seek with her and she would just squat down on the floor in front of me and hide her eyes and say, okay, I'm hiding. And you know, it was very easy to, I could just sit and read a book and say, where's Erin? I can't see her. That a child has no concept of their, you know, that when they close their eyes, they think they disappear. That we gradually get this idea of being able, we recognize, oh, that's not the case. And so this is what Freud, I think, is witnessing in his grandson. That little story, by the way, Derrida is also going to pick that story up and give us a long interpretation of it. Lacan does. It is then what Lacan is going to call, refer to as the mirror stage. That is, in the mirror stage, two things are posited. The symbolic order, what Freud calls the superego, in Pauline terms, the superego is what? Law. The law. It's just the law. In philosophical terms, 
what could we do with the law? Make it the foundation of our knowing? Yeah, it could be, in other words, this is what postmodern, it talks about a phallocentrism, a kind of foundationalism, a kind of ontotheology, metaphysics. You know, the phallocentrism is clearly kind of a Freudian notion, and Zizek and Lacan are going to pick up on. And of course, the idea is that in this understanding, the symbolic order is really the truth. It is the case. It is the way things are. Um, I was just going to say that it really, it, it was in one of the lectures, I think, for, for this week. And I thought it was Lacan that you said, and it kind of crystallized it for me when you said that the self is entirely an effect that posits its own cause. Do I have that right? That's right. That's Zizek. Which sounds, is that Zizek? Which sounds so fantastical. Like that sounds so outrageous, right? Like that's, that's such a big claim that the self is an effect which entirely posits its own cause. <laughs> Meaning what? That this thing is a construct. That we imagine that who we are we project the notion of the ego. We have the understanding of the superego. If you think of it in biblical terms, that Paul posits the law and the I, and the I in relationship to the law. So key in all of this, key in what we're going to do with philosophy, but also key in the way that we're going to handle theology, same, you know, same problem, but also then in terms of our own self-understanding, is the legitimacy of what Paul calls the law, or what is called the symbolic order, or is called the superego, or is called metaphysics. You know, we have a whole Christianity that just thinks that's, that is Christianity, that God is the lawgiver, and why Christ died is to meet the requirements of the law, and we've met those requirements, and that philosophy then can be simply tied directly into theology because philosophy is just a unfolding of God's natural law, you know, that this is an understanding that we get in Romans 1, that God has revealed himself, that it's written on people's hearts, that who God is, and so all that Christianity amounts to in this understanding is a kind of addendum to an already given understanding. And the law then is legitimate. Whether we're talking about the Mosaic law, we're talking about the prohibition in Eden, or whether we're talking about some law written on the heart or some natural law, there's really, in other words, in this reading of the New Testament, you can say who God is, you can say what the human problem is in conjunction with the notion that the law is legitimate. That is a travesty, but that is a form of Christianity, and that is the form of what the Western philosophical understanding that we've all, we're all kind of the heirs of. That, you know, what is called foundationalism or ontotheology, it is a kind of history in which there is a presumption of a direct access to truth through the naturally given order, a naturally given law, or the, you know, the law of the Jews. I think that all falls apart, of course. We can paint with a kind of broad brush 
And sometimes I may do that, and I, I understand that that can be challenged at many levels. Even a basic thing like, who is Plato and what did he say? I understand that's a highly contentious sort of thing. At any point, should I, I make a, a sweeping generalization, somebody needs to say, now, wait a minute. So I'm about to do that. I'm about to make some sweeping generalizations. Be patient with me a little bit. And that is that I think that what Paul is doing is that the law is not legitimate. Now, of course, by saying this, I don't mean the Mosaic law. I don't mean the prohibition in the garden. I just mean that the human perception of all of those laws due to the deception of sin, this is his description in Romans, is distorted. And so we've distorted every law. And so there is the sense that it really doesn't matter what law, you know, sometimes it's confusing which law Paul might be talking about. But at some point, it really doesn't matter because he's saying, yeah, but Jews and Gentiles are all fallen or failed in the same way. And that is that the law and the notion surrounding the law, and if we're broadening this out and talking about the law as language, I think we can just talk about a philosophical reification of language per se. You know, what is philosophy? Well, philosophy is a history of, again, I'm saying things that are too big, but that it is a kind of notion that we'll find the truth in language. That's the working supposition here. As Kafka puts it, it is an extremely painful thing to be ruled by laws that one does not know. That's actually what Paul is saying. Oh yeah, there's laws at work, the law of sin and death, but you don't have access to that law because you're deceived. That's what Freud is saying. Oh yeah, there's a law at work, but you don't have access to that law because we are we find ourselves structured by a lie. And that's the that's my notion of the structuring principle here is that the symbolic order, you know, this is Freud is telling he says, you know, don't imagine that the superego is the seat of morality. He says it's the seat of immorality. It is the ground of a moral masochism. I think that's what Paul is saying. He tells us the story of his, you know, his great achievement as a Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he, you know, excelled his uh, contemporaries in every way. He was zealous for the law. And in regard to righteousness, he was blameless. But of course, at the same time he's saying all that, he's also saying, and I was the chief of sinners. Paul is saying what Freud is saying, that your morality is your immorality. Your law keeping, your ethical system is a system of evil. That may seem kind of implausible on the surface, but think of the truly drastic evil that has been wrought in the world. There's always the, you know, the bank robber, but as Mark says, who's the greater thief, the one who robs the bank or the one who founds a bank? It's the capitalists. I don't know if you agree with that, but we can agree with the idea that organized evil, and that's what we're describing, Evil done in the name of God is the worst form of evil there is. Well, I had to, I have like a, I have a note because remember, 
So guys, this is a this is a difficult book in my opinion. Um, it's it's very it's complicated. Um, I think that once you kind of get the language of it and you understand the registers, it kind of opens up and you go, oh okay, I got you know that that makes a lot more sense. And I I kind of have a couple. Um, the first one that I'll share, it's kind of almost like a key that really helped me to understand the logic of because these are sweeping statements. Because but I think as Christians, what we're we're saying right off the bat is is that. Well, we understand though that like humanity is deceived. That's the narrative in Genesis three that human beings are fallen and that we've been deceived, right? And so, as a Christian, like I buy that, I, I agree. And so that's the really the crux of what Paul's argument is, like in the introduction, right? So on the page where it's the structure of the book, on page thirteen, I just made a little note. They kind of acted as a nice little key. And Paul, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but because what's at stake is is what you're is the, is the truth, right? Because you're saying there's a logic of the lie. And so what I wrote down, and it helped me to track through, you know, to remember kind of like how these categories coincide. So I put, you know, the truth is that which is negated. And for Lacan and these guys, that's the real, right? So the truth is that which is negated, which is like the id or the real or the death drive. So that's, that is, that's one sort of way to, and then the other one would be, so the, the, and the medium of the negation is language, right? So that the way, so that the the thing that's negated or obscured is the truth. So the id, the real, the the medium of the negation is language, or you know the superego or the law, right? That's the medium by which the truth is negated. And then the but here, the interesting part is is that the object of the lie, though, in this system, is the ego or the self, or what Lacan calls the imaginary. Is that right, Paul? And if that if, that's it. So and and so. That key right there, like I wrote that down in my little book and as you're in the book and as I was like reading, I was like, oh, that's right. So anytime Lacan is like talking about the real, like I got, I want to keep in mind that like that's sort of that which is negated, which is the truth, you know, or anytime that Lacan is talking about, you know, the symbolic, he's talking about like the medium of the lie in, in what Paul Axton is teaching, right? Like the language, the, the medium of the lie you know, the way that the lie gets to us. And then the self, which is what you, what Zizek called an effect that entirely posits its own cause, is like the object of, of the deception. And I really think that that's key to understanding what Paul's argument is in this book and kind of like the logic of, of what you're going to, what, how you're going to kind of unfold, you know, what you're doing. So I just wanted to add that as maybe. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. I think that once you put it in biblical language, it just helps to, to make sense of this. I, I think the, a lot of people struggle with, I think you can sit down and read Zizek and Lacan the rest of your life and never figure out what they're doing. <laughs> and that's part of the project. That's part of the way the program works. And so what I'm saying I, I'm in this, I'm giving you a, a key to saying, well, this is what they're always doing. They're always working in these three registers. And the key is that while this is precisely Paul's three registers, there's the law, there is that thing that we would imagine is the truth, whether you call it philosophical truth, religious truth, cultural truth, you know, whatever, whatever the nature of it is, just the symbolic order. The symbolic can just be authority. It's the thing that Jiminy Cricket calls the conscience. And in the Walt Disney version of philosophy let, or theology, let your conscience be your guide. But I think in the uh, 
Pauline version and the the understanding, I think, of Freud is no, actually, you, you don't let your conscience be your guide because your conscience is a punishing, masochistic, obscene kind of lawgiver. Imagine your conscience if it showed up at a party as a person. You know, it wouldn't be somebody you'd want to hang out with. It is a uh, sadistic sort of entity. And that's the way Freud describes it. And that's the way Paul is describing it. But we're not talking truth here. You know, that's the sad thing in Christianity. People think the sadistic conscience is God speaking to them. No, that's evil by definition, that in Lacanian theory, jouissance is this evil desire. Everything arises from this kind of evil desire. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 7, and that is, you know, this, this is kind of the two forms we'll pick up in philosophy. So yeah, there's the symbolic, let, let me give you, and this has to be, I'm painting big again, and Matt will object to this when I say it, and I want the objection at the end, but let me say it and then we'll get the objection. I think there are three basic philosophical possibilities given this construct. If this construct is the case, there is what Zizek and Lacan are going to call the masculine form of doing thinking or philosophy or personality or the orientation to the law. In philosophical terms, this would be metaphysics. This would be ontology. This would be, you know, describing being. Again, you know, this is more or less the history from Plato into Cartesian philosophy. The big break, of course, in the, the period is with Kant. And what Lacan is going to say about, well, Hegel, uh, Hegel is a, is a byproduct of who Kant is. Kant is giving us these antinomies, you know, these opposed things. And of course, that's kind of the history of philosophy. We want to create a harmony. We have these opposed things, these antinomies. And the history of philosophy is saying, okay, how can we harmonize this? And Kant is shifting this up and just describing and saying, well, actually, we can't because the way that we even understand anything is dependent upon these. But Kant is still then, in a sense, he's still with the, the moderns. But Hegel comes along and says, yeah, Kant's right, we can't. But it's not because of a some incapacity on our part. Hegel is saying, no, that's the way reality is. Reality is built around a gap, around a failure. Again, I'm not telling you the truth here. I'm just telling you philosophy, right? I'm just telling you what these guys are doing. And so the gap is, you know, this will, will Hegel will talk about a dialectic, that this dialectic is always, you know, that's the way that we, we have to tarry with the negative, that it arises out of death and nothingness. I've just done two phases in philosophy. Phase one is the masculine. That's the history, you know, up till... Phase two is the feminine in terms of Lacanian theory. The feminine is that which questions, that which challenges the law. The masculine identifies with the law. The, the masculine uh, imagines that the law is legitimate, that the law says it all. 
Think here of Newtonian science. The idea is that we can say it all in science, that it encompasses all of reality. Hegel is going to come along and say, no, we can't, because there's an, an antinomy, an antagonism. All of this, then, we're referring to a orientation of the subject, but I think we're also talking about kinds of philosophy. And the kind of philosophy that we're going to get after Hegel is this, you know, what we're calling postmodern sort of philosophy. So there's masculine, there's feminine, and those are, by the way, the two forms of thought that Paul is outlining at the beginning of Romans 7. He talks about the woman who, you know, whose husband, who's either living or dead, and she consorts with another. Zizek loves that illustration. And of course, his point with it is that the, the husband is representative of the law. A living husband is a law that is in place. A dead husband is in some way, you know, the, that she is able to consort with another legitimately. The next step is, but you have all died with Christ. You've all been buried with him. And what Paul is actually describing literally is feminine in relationship to Christ. That is, uh, in Lacanian theory, you're either of a masculine or a feminine orientation. I, I would suggest there's a, a, we could posit another philosophical understanding here, maybe an idic philosophy, and I think that's kind of what we're doing in this class, but we're not staying there. In other words, that's Freud, that's Lacan. In a sense, they, they are staying with the feminine, and they say that it's all there is, but I actually think that it's, it's going beyond that. So I just did the history of all philosophical thought, and I'm not sure, you know, if you ask me, okay, well, where, you know, where does this particular guy fit in? You know, even somebody like Plato. Well, probably you would find people reading Plato in three different registers. You know, you have the Platonism that somebody like Nietzsche is challenging, and it is their, you know, kind of a dualism. Then you have the Neoplatonists with Plotinus that are picturing a kind of mystical Platonism, reading Parmenides in particular, and that, that particular picture of a kind of unachievable absolute, a kind of apophatic philosophy. And then you would have people like Milbank and Catherine Pickstock reading. I think that these are the registers that are always at work, but to say that somebody just falls completely into one of these registers, that may be harder to prove or harder to show. But I, and, and so this is where I want Matt to jump in and give us a warning in other words, I don't want to be simplistic in this and say, you know, like we might with religion. Religions are all demonic, or religions are all good, or uh, in other words, these sweeping statements. I think the idea is, well, no, you actually have to, you have to do the philosophical, you have to inhabit a particular philosophical thinker and, and actually work with them. And so I don't mean a kind of crude picture of that. It is a depiction of the, the mode in which, in which we're working. Before I I, I want to ask, so you, you have the masculine and the feminine, and you said the third way. I'm presuming that, do you mean Christian? I didn't. Uh, Christian, <laughs> we should put that one in there. What I actually <laughs> meant was idic, death drive, Nietzsche, nihilism, 
you know, maybe even the Marquis de Sade, there is a, a philosophy, at least the recognition in, per, in certain philosophical periods or epics that I would call idic. And I would actually put Freudian thought there. How Christianity intersects with this, it's going to sidestep the notion of functioning within these three realms. We're going to begin, we're going to start with a kind of apocalyptic understanding, an alternative foundation. And we'll bring that in. In other words, that, that is the conclusion to this book and a conclusion to this course that Christianity, I believe, is going to say something that we can't get there otherwise. Paul, what, did you say idic? Yeah, the id, the it, the uh, real, the, you know, the tripartite self is the ego, the superego, and the id in Freud. Yeah, okay. Oh. And in Lacan, it's the, the imaginary is the ego, the superego is the symbolic language authority, and the id is the real. And by that, he doesn't mean reality. He just means that that is the controlling. You know, you've got the opposed pairs of consciousness in the symbolic and the ego, and the unconscious is the thing that is denied. It's the thing that's repressed. But it's the reality, in a sense. It's not. I don't mean reality as out there, but it's that force that is unleashed in the human subjectivity. So I think that Paul and I's conversation, what we've talked to, we, you know, I, I can't remember when you wrote this book, Paul. Was it in 2011 or something or 13? Maybe? Yeah, I think that's when it's published. So we've been having this conversation, of course, for a while. But something that we keep going back and forth on is, is okay, I, I like where, where you're going with this, where you're saying, okay, you know, as subjects, we've been deceived that, you know, there really is such a thing as um, we sort of believed a lie. And the result of that is death and, and sin. And my, my question has always been, okay, and, and, and if you read through this book, it's actually really dark. You know, like the situation that you're describing is profoundly dark. What you're going to describe is that this self derives pleasure from a sort of, you know, what you call jouissance, which is like a, an excess as a sort of a former and sometimes current, unfortunately, center. I can, I can attest that like the best pleasure is in, you know, the you know, kind of like the most forbidden or, or whatever you want to call it, right? So in other words, like you're describing this this terrible situation that we find ourselves in as sort of like these deceived, you know, subjects that are basically a fiction because we've constructed an identity that's grounded upon literally nothing and you're telling them the story. And so what I've always said is, is okay, but what's the, what's the touch point with grace? Where's the inbreaking of... Um, the goodness of, of, of creation or the goodness of what it means to be human because I'm not sure how we find our, our way out of this mess. And, and for Lacan and Zizek, there is no way out. This is all you got. You know, there, all there is is this sort of subject of the lie. It's one of the chapters of the book, I believe. That was, that's, that's I guess, like part number one because what I, what I mean by that is, is that, well, once you seal yourself off, and I don't think that that happens necessarily with what you're doing, Paul, is that you don't want to end up with kind of like two realms of knowledge or something like this, right? Where you have like a Christian knowing, and then you have like this sort of other, you know, because I think that maybe something that you could pull from, from your hypothesis is to say that, okay, and all of the knowledge that arises then 
from this self that's grounded in a fiction, grounded in a lie, grounded in language, then what's produced, the only thing that can come from that, right, is something that's sort of, and, and maybe this is true, right, that it's like sort of lacking in truth or, or maybe just plain evil or just plain lies or whatever. And so then you need a, a sort of a Christian epistemology or you need a, a sort of a purely, and, and, and maybe you do, right, like an apocalyptic sort of inbreaking of a new knowledge that is could separate, right, from anything that philosophy can give us because they, it's, you know, that the whole project arises from a lie in your telling. Again, feel free to say, no, that's not what I'm saying. But so I guess the conversation that we're having is, is that, okay, there's a way to read, you know, that you talk about this, you say, okay, the, the tendency is to like blame, you know, a Rene Descartes and say, oh, it's that, it's all Descartes' fault, or oh, it's all Dun Scotus's fault, or oh, it's all Plato's fault, or, or whoever, right? There's a scapegoat or whatever. But we, we had a conversation yesterday where, where we were talking about Nietzsche, and you talked about reading Nietzsche charitably, Christianly. Just, and I like, you know, but Merrill Westfall has written a book that's really great on reading Nietzsche and Marx and Freud, you know, sort of in Christianly. And I, it's a great book. And I, I totally agree. So all I said was, is, okay, if we're going to, and I think and I think that we should read Nietzsche and, and Derrida and Zizek and Lacan and all these people charitably, because all truth is God's truth, in my, in my understanding, right? So that there is no ghetto of Christian knowledge that's kind of like sealed off or separate from maybe even the the the, the truth of that the philosophers have come to or whatever. So I was just saying like, well, maybe we, maybe we should read Plato with the same sort of. It doesn't mean that he's right. Just like Nietzsche isn't always right. Like we profoundly disagree with some parts of Nietzsche and of Zizek, and you know, there's violence there, and there's all these different things, or or even Hegel. But but Paul, you yourself have said like, yeah, but Hegel has done a great thing if if we read him charitably to help us understand what at least what Christianity maybe isn't, right? So it, I think it's easy to sort of lay all this stuff at the feet of maybe like an Aristotle or a Plato. And, and maybe that's a project, you know, that Nietzsche, Nietzsche does that, you know? Um, but as Christians, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we, how do we appropriate? Well, this is Kierkegaard. Like what I would say to you is, is that I think that what, what really maybe we should as Christians do is to not look at it like in a totally negative sense, but to maybe understand that, well, it, it, it was sort of incomplete and it needed to be lifted. Kierkegaard has this idea of like the teleological suspension. The Hebraic tradition isn't obliterated, but it's, it's actually lifted by the incarnation and by the revelation of Christ. So, so maybe it's not that like Platonism or Aristotelian thought or all these other forms of thought are like totally shattered and obliterated, but that actually they're located and relativized and lifted by the incarnation and the revelation that we have in Christ, you know, so that we can properly receive them. And the way that we receive them, though, it is through charity. In other words, like you can read it with a totally, with just suspicion, you know, in a postmodern sense like that, or to, to read them in with a, just a purely critical sort of eye, uh, which is needed, but also in a way that's, uh, that's charitable and where we can kind of plunder, you know, the Egyptians, you know, just like the church has always done for 2000 years and say, yeah, we're taking that. That's ours now. You know, that's ours now over here because it's true. And if it's true, then it's good. And if it's good, then it's wisdom. Yeah, that's what I wanted you to add specific way to this. What does Paul describe as what happens to the law? He uses a, a word that Hegel is going to pick up and it's going to become key. It's Aufhebung in the, in the German, but it's actually a word that Luther had originally 
views, if I remember right. And the idea is the law is not obliterated. It's not like it's uh, a supersessionism, but it's the punishing effects of the law are suspended. The law is still there. It's still doing, it's still functioning in the way that it should function, but it's in the suspended understanding or the, the, the suspension that occurs in Christ, I think there is actually then the capacity to put the law in its proper place. I'm happy to hear objections, but this was my thought as we had this discussion yesterday. Isn't this the approach that we can take to philosophy? that there is a suspension of a kind of, in other words, what, what is happening philosophically is never a, a purely neutral thing. There is always, I think, the same working of this masochistic desire. I think it portrays itself in area, every area of life. But I think that with this suspension, we can now look at not just philosophy, but the philosophical order, the, you know, any area of study, and we can reap the full benefits. We can see the fruit. We can recognize the grace of God in this in a way that we could not before. We do not mistake it with the voice of God, but we can understand and see the grace of God at work in the world in a way that we could not before when our tendency is to reify the law, to make it a comprehensive understanding. And I think that gets at what you're saying. In other words, we don't want to do the Karl Barth move, if this is a, a, an accurate description of Barth, who often is described as kind of putting himself in a ghetto, of cutting himself off from philosophical and other forms of thought. I think that this does just the opposite. Now we engage fully in the history of human thought, in human culture, and we can recognize, I think, given proper understanding, where the grace of God is at work and can be utilized. And of course, this is the, the history of the, the New Testament is going to be written in Greek. It's going to take up a lot of terms that are coming right out of Plato, right out of Greek philosophical thought. And so I think this is going to give us the key to reading this in the way of understanding that, yes, God's grace is at work here too, and we can discern it. For people that don't have the degrees and stuff, it's got to still ring true for everyday life, and it makes some sort of sense of suffering, makes some sort of sense of what's wrong with humanity. And, and for me, what you're saying... Um, even if you go out onto the street and, and look at poverty, look at like addictions, look at um, a whole lot of the, the, the things that really hound the human condition, I think it makes sense of it. I, I, I think that's it. Yeah, Paul, I think that Dan is right because I think that ultimately what your book is about is about sickness. You know, you're, you're talking about like the sickness of the human self and how that sickness manifests itself both, you know, individually and then corporately and then all these different thought forms and, and that the good news, you know, the end of your book comes, yeah, the sickness unto death. Exactly. And then at the end of the book, you know, you, you, you do describe that well in Romans eight, that God breaks in, that that's what's happened in Christ. And that, um, 
he's he is he's healing us and he's and that's part of that's another way to talk about what we're saying right now is that the way that we relate to ourselves the way that we relate to the law you know that it's not that the you know saint paul says that the law is good but our orientation to it is is this you know it's disordered or, or ill or whatever that the whole point of salvation and, and the way that you describe it is that the god is uh, is healing us and the effects that that healing has is then you know orientation to what is good you know to the law or to to be able to like rightly see the situation like dan was describing and say oh you know this, this poverty or this addiction or this whatever that as Christians, like that's what we should be able to do is like you, you told me the other day, Paul, that there's a joy. And I love that, you know, to be able to go through and, and, and kind of engage life on a, on, a, on, a, on a much deeper level because you understand, at least in part, both the sickness and hopefully, you know, the cure. I was thinking that maybe like another pra- practical way to see this is in, in the Sermon of the Mount. Like we usually you know, hear sermons, uh, or even we usually speak about it as whenever Jesus is using the law, you know, you've heard it said it was this, 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 and this, and, but I tell you, and I think we usually think like, oh, he's giving us a, a, a reinterpretation of the law. He's changing the law or something. And I think what, what ultimately is happening is he's changing our orientation to the law. It's like the purpose of the law wasn't just to avoid or, or, or stop you right before you kill somebody. The whole point was, do not even get to this point. So I'm telling you, do not even hate them. Like that was the true purpose of the law. So he changes that orientation. The law is still the same. Do not kill. But the orientation of it, it it's corrected. So not just an atonement, you know, as we usually think of, you know, new creation after that. Like I think Jesus is doing this healing right, you know, throughout his whole ministry. Like, let me reorientate you guys. Let me tell you how this it was supposed to work. You heard it said this way, but this is the, you know, the true orientation to the law. So let me teach you that. And you need the one to get to the other. You need the history of metaphysics. You need philosophy as we have it. In a sense, it is functioning in that same way. And Dan, I really like what you said, because that, that's what this whole book is actually doing. We're using, uh, you know, we're just saying a very simple thing at one level. And that is that we're going to talk about the death of Christ in a very practical way. People are sick. They have a disease. And Christ addresses that disease. Christ addresses the human sickness. He is the great physician. He is the great healer. The language, you know, I hope it, the philos- the, for some people, the philosophical language may be uh, a kind of obstacle, but it's just a way of articulating the same thing. Philosophy is not doing anything different. It's just articulating the human condition in a, in a different fashion. And so I think it, it is addressing the philosophical uh, expression of that disease. Um, you know, we're just talking about uh, kind of like our relation to philosophy um, as a tradition, and I thought this this part where you quoted Eric Santner, um, yeah, where it, you're you're uh, quoting uh, taking up you know Freud's um, his relation to his uh, religious heritage, Jewish heritage. Because one thing that struck me once when I did read some Freud, um, or took a course was, and those of you that know. 
that I worked on Lebanon, so my, my pieces together right away, was that he was saying, you know, this commandment to love the neighbor is uh, is the most absurd idea. It's the most, you know, he basically thinks that uh, any kind of high, speaking of Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, be perfect as I am perfect. Any kind of high ethical demand is not healthy for the ego or not healthy for the individual. It will create problems for them. Um, and so this line from Eric that says, for Judaism as well as for Christianity, that is human life always includes more reality than it can contain. And this too much bears witness to a spiritual and moral calling, a pressure toward self-transformation, toward goodness. Kind of the question, I it was helpful, this distinction you made with law, metaphysics, superego, because what I've always wanted to do, I think, when it comes to people from the psychology side is to say, is that like try to do kind of an ethics beyond the symbolic or something like almost put it in more an everyday encounter with others. You could say like a more phenomenological kind of register or something. Because what Nietzsche or other people and Freud and other people critique Zizek too. Yeah, I think Zizek has a section called smashing the neighbor's face or something, you know, like he doesn't think that uh, loving the neighbor is a possibility either. And so I know this is a little bit different than what I may be revealing kind of my own selfish interest in, uh, in in the psychoanalytic tradition, or it's it's just interesting how Freud, his connection to the Jewish uh, his Jewish heritage is like is to go towards the death drive. But I did read somewhere Judith Butler, someone said that Freud also said that one way to um, deal with uh, aggression and death drive or whatever was also to introduce eternal arrows or something like this. Like he almost did think too that. This, this after World War One, right, is when he came up with Death Drive in the 20s or something, right? So it's, he's saying, I think there is this, I call it kind of like an ethical impulse beyond morality, beyond like Kant or that, of course, is in the face of the other. That's the Levinas, Levinasian idea is that the ethical command is moved away from God and it's moved away from reason. And it's presented in the face of the very humanity of another person who makes a, a claim on me. I just I just wrote the ethical outside the symbolic. I think that's what I want to, yeah. or that's what like my my ideas are trying to kind of do. If I but I'm very new to Lacan, very new to Zizek. I uh, I did pick up this uh, Zizek's book on how to read Lacan. Yeah, I yeah. actually I read in the Amazon comments like. It's a real just 100-page, it's Zizek telling you what Lacan's about. So it yeah. might be a good combo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know, but anyways, those are my thoughts that, have to do, that I'm interested in philosophical ethics. Is right. And Jewish ethics, that's sort of my, uh, my area. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. The structure that, I, that, that Zizek is describing, that actually Paul is describing, we haven't gotten to, to love. <laughs> it's, it's actually ruled out. In some way, to, to get to love, to get to true ethics, it is this beyondness. It is this too muchness. It is going to be the undoing of the structure that I've just described. So don't, uh, yeah, I'm doing dark stuff here, but don't think that's where we're dwelling. And I'm glad, you know, Matt, I'm, I'm glad, Nathan, you guys jumped in because uh, the, the light, people complain about the book that you got to 
you got to go through all this darkness before the light begins to dawn. But yeah, the idea is this is the problem. This is the sickness. And once we got the sickness, then we can understand the cure. The, you know, not to reduce Christianity to simply a cure of the sickness. It's, it's a realm beyond. It is a dwelling in this too muchness. It is a dwelling in beyond the good and evil, and, and not in the Nietzschean sense, but in the notion of some symbolic order of, of good and evil. It's very, I would just say this was uh, very good so far. Really enjoying it. I'm excited to, yeah, to, uh, to see it all unfold and to learn more. Good deal. It's so good to meet everybody. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. Good night. Yes. Seeing you guys. See you guys. See you later. Nice to see you, Matt. Like, actually see you. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.